0: I don't know if you got a chance to see that movie, Antoine Fisher, but uh, one of the reasons why I liked that movie, actually two of the reasons why I liked that movie was, uh, first of all, it's about a young man who grew as a human being. He was an emotionally immature um, young man who went through a journey where he became an emotionally mature man. And he found his family. And he found out who he was, and he had to deal with uh, the, the junk of his past, and, uh, and he grew as a result, um, the young man, Antoine Fisher. Um, but then the character that Denzel Washington played, uh, the mentor, uh, the teacher, uh, he also grew in that movie. And this father figure found purpose and meaning, and satisfaction, and fulfillment in pouring himself out uh, into someone else. It, he, he helped this young man along through this journey. And he couldn't do it for him, but he walked alongside him and encouraged him. And as a result, he grew. It's not just about how one person grew, but it's about how two people grew, the student and the teacher, growing. Growing. And that's what I want to talk about um, today and for the next few weeks. I want to talk about growth. I want to talk about pressing on to spiritual growth. And that comes from our uh, vision statement. We exist to be a life-changing community of authentic believers, passionately pursuing Christ. We're here to grow closer and closer in our relationship with Jesus, we wanna help people who are ignorant, or apathetic, or distant from Christ, become fully devoted followers of Christ. We want to see them become passionate about Christ. Those who are apathetic we wanna see become passionate. That's why we're here. And, and, And it is the responsibility of leadership to ask, why are we here? It's the responsibility of your church leadership. It's the responsibility of your minister to ask the question, what is our business? What are we supposed to be doing here? Why do we gather? Why do we have all of our activities? It's the function of leadership to do that. It's the function of leadership at home to do that as well. What is our business? And then the other question is, how's business? How's business? How are we doing what it is we're supposed to be doing? Uh, how faithful are we in terms of staying focused to the prime directive that God has called us to be? Those questions have to be asked first of the leaders. I'm thinking of Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where the Apostle Paul says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God for which he bought with his own blood. And part of that involves the responsibility of looking at the health and the condition of our flock. And that explains why uh, last fall we did a congregational health survey. We participated in a congregational survey called Reveal. Um, You may remember it. It was a web-based survey. 200 of... uh, uh, you responded uh, online, uh, and which was a pretty good sample for our feedback. We were, we were hoping to get at least 20% of our average worship attendance, and we got uh, just over 22%. And so I want us to talk about what it is we've been learning uh, in that response, in that survey from you. Some of what I've learned about the spiritual growth of our congregation is very affirming and encouraging. It really is. I mean, one example of that is uh, what we're going to be doing at the close of our service uh, when we're going to pray over the 30 missionaries who are going to be going to the Dominican Republic uh, on, uh, on Tuesday. I am excited about that. So I'm encouraged by some of the things that we're learning about our spiritual health. And then I uh, obviously learned some things about our growth areas. We don't have weaknesses. We have growth areas. How's that for spinning, huh? Well, those are harder lessons to learn uh, because I'm going to be honest with you folks. I, uh, I tend to take our weaknesses personally and I don't like to hear about our weaknesses, uh, but I need to hear about it because how else can we improve at passionately pursuing Christ if we don't know what we're doing well and if we don't know what it is we need to work on. So, so, so this morning... As we begin this series, I I want to talk about one question and one question only, and it's simply this. What is spiritual growth? What is spiritual growth? You ever think about that for a minute? We think, okay, I need to grow spiritually. All right, well, what is spiritual growth? Here's what I want us to do. Can we get the house lights on, Matt? I want you to take the next 30 seconds, turn to the person next to you, and I want you to define that question right now. I want you to answer the question: what is spiritual growth? Here's my understanding of what spiritual growth is. Go. 10 seconds. Okay. Okay, think about what you talked about here, all right? Think about what you talk about while I talk, all right? I mean, that happens anyway, right? (laughs) You think your mind wanders when I speak? My mind wanders when I speak. What are you talking about? All right, you've got that definition locked in. Let's talk about that. And and let's uh, I want us to leave today with a with a rock solid definition of what spiritual growth is all about. And the way I want to do that, the way I want to do that is to first of all talk about what spiritual growth is not. I want to expose a couple of misconceptions that people have about spiritual growth. And and so I want to talk about what it's not and then what Jesus says it is. What Jesus says it is, and then I want us to see where we are as far as that goes, all right? What is spiritual? What, 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 is, what is spiritual growth not, huh? What is spiritual? How, how, for, how do you measure spiritual growth anyway? How do you do that? Is there a scale? Is there a beaker? Is there a laboratory? How do you measure this thing called spiritual growth? Well, many models of spiritual growth look something like this. Uh, a church offers different programs: uh, Sunday morning services, children 's programs, student programs, there 's Bible classes, groups, support groups, serving, caring, and, uh, and you could call it a, a church activity model, where you people come in on one side and they enter and they attend all of the programs that the church has to offer, and then when they 're done, then they go out on the other side and, and that experience, that car wash experience, you could call it that. That's what I think of it is The car wash model of spiritual growth. You go in dirty and you come out clean. And in the car wash model, the car wash model, success is getting as many people into the car wash as possible. Getting as many people in the car. and so we so we tend to ask questions like, how many, how many people confessed Christ, how many people were baptized, how many members does the church have, how many attend on Sunday, how many tithe, how many are in a small group, how many actively serve, how much did they give, how big is the staff. How many people are coming, and how does that compare with last year or the year before? And if it's more, we're successful. If it's not, we're not being that successful. The car wash model of spiritual growth. And what happens is when a church either knowingly or unknowingly adopts this car wash model of church spiritual formation, the assumption is is simple, isn't it? Increased attendance equals... People growing. More people showing up equates to growth. Right? I wonder if that conversation came up in your groups. I don't know if it did or did not. I wasn't privy. But I I wonder, you know. Increased attendance, more people. Increased attending equals more people growing equals success. But what we've learned, what we've learned from our research, is that that the connection between church activity and spiritual growth is limited. Is limited. Are you warm in here? (coughs) Me too. Can we fix that, Mike? Thank you. This is Mike McLeay. He's our associate minister. He has total control over the church now because he is in charge of the air conditioning button. Okay? That is power. About as power, much powerful as the microphone guys have back there. So anyway, they're saying, yeah, we do have power over you, Bolting House. Don't ever forget that. I haven't. Where was I? I was, on spirit. I was in a car wash. But have you ever found yourself thinking that way, that, oh, okay, things are successful just simply because more people are coming? Okay, Well, but think about that for a minute. Just because a child shows up at school doesn't mean education's happening, right? Yeah. Just because you go to the hospital doesn't mean you're going to get better. Showing up doesn't always mean getting better. Why? Because there's a lot of sick people in the hospital. Just because you spend time in a correctional institution doesn't mean you're going to get corrected. And just because you show up at a church activity or event doesn't automatically mean you're going to grow spiritually. Spiritual growth is not about Increased church attendance, increased attendance, increased activity. These just don't necessarily mean that spiritual growth is going to occur. It's just not it's not about just showing up and doing a variety of church exercises. Now, you know, that said, we don't go to the other extreme and say, well, you know, numbers don't matter at all. Well, yeah, numbers do. There was a book of the Bible called Numbers. So, yeah. It's just that we don't lean on whatever, it, we don't lean on the numbers to tell us the whole story, right? We recognize that attendance and activities are a part of a bigger profile, a bigger picture. So the car wash model of tr- spiritual growth is not the one we want to focus on. There's another misconception I want to bring about that may be a little more personal, maybe a little more confrontive. I don't want to make anybody angry here, but I want to talk about this. I call it the the Six Flags model of spiritual growth. The Six Flags model of spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is not about just showing up and doing church activities. And spiritual growth is not just about feeling euphoric about my faith. You know, Go to the Six Flags model and it just feels good because we're having a good time. The thought that because I happen to be feeling good about my life and myself and my church, that means I'm growing. That means I'm growing. Thank you, Mike. Sometimes Christians can be in a season of emotional ecstasy and, and mislabel that spiritual growth. Huh? And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have happy feelings. I like feeling happy. I mean, I feel happy when I feel happy. It's just that that may not be due to spiritual growth. Really, it may not. But you're calling it that. But, well, no, you may feel good. You may feel good because you get an A plus on your term paper. You may feel good because you graduated and you have a degree. You may feel good because you made your last car payment. You may feel good because you're engaged. You may feel good because you broke up the engagement. A lot of different reasons why you could feel, or you know, You may feel good because you got a $1 million inheritance, or you may feel good because you got a hole in one, or you may feel good because your coffee has kicked in like mine just has. You may feel good for a lot of different reasons that have nothing to do with spiritual growth. There's a lot of reasons for feeling good about life and faith and God and Jesus and my church, and I'm not saying we shouldn't feel happy about these. It's just that feeling happy may not automatically translate into spiritual growth. And therefore, when someone says to me, well, I'm here at Windsor Road because, you know, I, I wasn't growing spiritually at my other church, or, uh, I'm, uh, or, or I'm leaving Windsor Road because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not experiencing spiritual growth, I want to probe that. I, wanna, I want to probe that. I want you to probe that. I want you to probe that with the question, what is your understanding of spiritual growth? What is your understanding of spiritual growth? I'll tell you this much, if spiritual growth and spiritual formation is anything like physical formation, then the last emotion I would expect to feel is happiness, because I've never been euphoric about push-ups and (sighs) pull-ups, right? That's why they call it a workout, as opposed to a fun out, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it. Do what? Go into strict training to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man Running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Does that sound euphoric? Huh? Does that sound euphoric? If you don't feel like you're growing spiritually, maybe the fact of the matter is you are. You are. You're in a trial, you're going through labor pains. And what we need to understand is that pain and difficulty in life can be times of exceptional spiritual growth. Is that not why we studied the book of Job earlier this year? So I I I would be suspicious of someone who talks about spiritual growth in terms of the car wash mentality, and I would be suspicious about someone who talks about spiritual growth in terms of the Six Flags model. Huh? So then what is spiritual growth? What is it? What's the best way to define it? Well, better still, how would Jesus define spiritual growth? Let's talk about that. Uh, can we agree that his understanding trumps all of our other understandings? Can we? His, can we agree that his definition bests anybody else's? Huh? Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 12, verses 29, and 30. Jesus was once asked by an expert in the law, a scribe, where to start in terms of spiritual growth. Of all the commandments in God's words, you know, which one matters most? Which one stands in line first? One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that that Jesus answered them well, asked, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important one is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 when he quoted that passage. It's called the Shema. The Shema, say that on three, one, two, three. Shema, Shema. It, the Shema is the quintessential expression of the most fundamental belief and commitment to Judaism. If you boiled Judaism down to the stain at the, to the, 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 the bottom of the coffee cup, it would be this right here. It's the first prayer. It's the first prayer that a Jewish child would learn the Shema. Jesus would have memorized this as a child. He would have meditated on it and recited it every day. Loving God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength is the bullseye of Old Testament Judaism. That's it. To love God most means that he has claim on every part of your life. To love God most means that I'm seeking God for God's own sake, not for what he can do for me. To love God most means that I'm going after, I'm passionately pursuing him. I'm seeking his interests, his desires, his plans, his agenda, his will, his wants, his way. And what's significant about this church family is is not merely what Jesus said, but how he redefined the Shema. He redefined what it meant to love God Most because Jesus says, if you want to love God most, then you must follow me. You must passionately pursue me. I must be the most important person in your life. And there's another passage of scripture that explains this and talks about it. I got it up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 9 two little verses. Verses 59 and 60. Jesus said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, what is that about? Well, if you go to commentaries, you will often find an interpretation of this where Jesus is saying, let the spiritually dead take care of the burial services. You follow me. All right, that's a very common understanding. I found a fascinating article this past week, which really, I think, captures the heart of what Jesus is saying here in Luke 59 and 60, what you need to understand is, is you, know, this may, you know this son's father died and he was doing what was simply expected of him as a good first century Jewish son. You see, in the first century funerals and burials took place in a, in a two-part process, a two-stage burial. Stage one was when the person actually died and They were then wrapped, and they were uh, embalmed with spices, and then they were placed in the family tomb, all right? That was stage one, like Jesus when he died. And, And that would take place within 24 hours of death. It would happen right then and there, okay? But here's the deal. That was only temporary. That was only temporary. You see, the corpse would be in the tomb for about a year, And then the body would decompose. And then after about a year later, that son would then return to the tomb, open the tomb. And then the body would have decomposed to the bones around a year. And then the son would take those bones and then put them in a smaller box called an ossuary. And And then the permanent burial would take place. And it was the son's responsibility to do this. Not to do this would have been appalling. And so the man says, I will follow you after I place my father's bones in the ossuary. We're thinking that this conversation took place between the first and the second burials. And it would have had to have taken place after the first burial. Because this man would not have been even having the conversation with Jesus if his father had just died. He he would go straight into mourning. He would clear the decks and go straight into the task of of wrapping the body and bombing for the first burial. So we're thinking that this happened between the first and the second burials. And and Jesus then snaps back, no! And he gives the immortal one-liner, let the dead bury the dead. In other words, he's saying, let the other dead in the family tomb rebury your father's bones. Well, obviously they can't do that, can they? The other dead in the tomb cannot resume the task of the second burial. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? In essence, he makes a sharp, cutting, curt, terse, culturally offensive, if not sarcastic remark about second burials. And why? Why? Because he's trying to get into this guy's face. And he's trying to tell him, fella, there is something more urgent in your life right now, and it is me and the kingdom of God. Jesus demands absolute allegiance. And by the way, this very verse right here, I think helps prove that the historical Jesus existed because I can never imagine... Later believers in the church putting this type of material in because it was so culturally offensive. I mean, that's something they just wouldn't put in. But Jesus says, buddy, if you want to follow me, now's the day. You don't have any time to lose. And so the guy has a decision. Should I follow how I've been taught all my life regarding the Torah, the law, or should I follow the Torah in the flesh? And Jesus says, you follow me. To love God. With all of your heart and soul and mind and strength means following Jesus. Love God most equals following Jesus. But then, back to Mark 12, 31, Jesus adds this, doesn't he? He says the second commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where did that come from? Well, it came from Luke chapter 19, verse 18. That's where it came from and it originally referred to from among your own people, from among your own race. But once again, Jesus redefines the word neighbor, and that's what the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about. Your neighbor is anyone in need, whether it's in your race or out of your race, especially if they're your enemy, as the Samaritan was to the Jews. Scott McKnight has written... uh, book that I would recommend called The Jesus Creed, where he says that love, love for your neighbor, is unconditional regard for a person that prompts and shapes behaviors to help that person become what God desires. Love, when working properly, is emotion and will, affection and action. It's not just feeling it, it's doing it. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. It it, it does does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. If I love you, I'm helping you become the person God wants you to be. And Jesus says, there's no commandment greater than these. The Jesus Creed. The Jesus Creed. Love God by following Christ and love people. Church family, the heartbeat of spiritual growth, the heartbeat of spiritual formation, is not the car wash pulse of church activity. And it's not the amusement park euphoria of feel good religion. At its core, spiritual formation, spiritual growth is about a heart that loves God more than, more than anything else by following Jesus more than anyone else. And it's about a heart that loves others. Spiritual growth, love God by following Christ and love others That's why Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So the question is this, not that I show up to services more this year than last year. The question is, do I love God more this year than last year? Do I? What about people? What about my neighbor? What about those in need? What about those who are not like me? What about those with whom I just don't have any connection with? What about those that I just don't have any personality chemistry with? It's easy to love someone who's like me. Do I love God and others more, heart, soul, and mind, and strength? That's the question. And here's what we've learned from our survey. We learned that when we asked folks about their spiritual lives, when we talked about spiritual growth, not in terms of church activity or euphoric feelings of faith, but in terms of a Love relationship with Jesus. We found, that, we found that there were four segments to this. Four, con, a kind of a continuum, a spectrum. Four parts, four segments. An, an orchard with trees growing in different seasons. And the first season is a season called Exploring Christ. Exploring Christ. People who say, you know, I I think I believe in God. I'm not sure about the claims of Christ. Um, I I think Jesus is the way to heaven. I'm not sure, or I don't know, or I don't really involve God daily in my life. I'm not sure if the Bible's relevant, but I'm I'm wanting to explore that. I'm wanting to explore that, exploring Christ. Then there's a segment that we found in our church family called Growing in Christ, these are folks who have crossed the line of faith. These are folks who, who are discovering what it means to trust Christ. These are folks who need others help them to help them learn about Scripture and what it means. These are folks who are willingly participating in small groups. And these are folks who find themselves reading the Bible more and more or other Christian books. Then there's a third segment called Close to Christ. Close to Christ. These believers are reporting higher levels of spiritual practices and behaviors. They're looking for direction. Prayer is becoming more and more central to their lives. They haven't surrendered everything to Christ, but they're getting there. Spiritual friends are becoming more important to them. Serving is becoming more important. And it's like those who are... Who feel like they're close to Christ? It's like Jesus is alongside of them. And he's walking along with me. He's walking along with me to in my marriage, in my neighborhood. He's walking along with me at work. He's right next beside me, walking alongside of me. I feel close to Christ. And then there's a fourth segment called Christ-centered. Christ-centered. These folks love God. They, they, they feel they love God more than anything else. They're not perfect, of course not, but they just couldn't fathom life without Christ. For them, Christ is not walking beside them. Christ is in them. For them, their prayer is, Lord, I want less and less of my personality and my heart and what I do, and I want you to just take over. I want people to see you through me. Christ-centered. And when a Christ-centered person prays, they say, God, just tell me what you want. I don't want you to help me on my project. I want to know what your project is. And so when we think about, when we think about this paradigm, this love relationship with Jesus paradigm, that's when spiritual formation occurs. And, and, and when we think about this spectrum, this paradigm, that's when we can help really commit ourselves to practices and behaviors and attitudes that will help us grow. And so I don't want you to think of these four segments as like a caste system or a football team, first team, second team, third, no, no, no. Think of this as an orchard of fruit trees, an orchard of fruit trees and with, at different seasons of growth. And some are saplings and some are fruit-bearing trees. Now, where would you say you are? Where would you say you are? Which of those four seasons? You know what? I know where we are. You told us. You told us. 7% of our church family self-identified as exploring Christ. 7% of our church family self-identified as exploring Christ. 43% 43% of our church self-identified as growing in Christ, growing in Christ, 43%. 27% of our church self-identified as close to Christ, close to Christ. And 23% self-identified as Christ-centered, Christ-centered. I, I think this is fascinating because what I'm seeing here is about, you know, half of us are Antoine Fishers. And the other half of us are Denzel Washingtons. And we both need to grow. We both need to grow. Half of us, half of us need to be mentored and taught. And, and we need to, we need to, you know, we need to, we need to go and serve and, be sent on learning and caring and doing assignments that can't be done for us. We need to, and the others of us need to help mentor those. And, and as a result, both will grow. Both will grow. So the question is not, you know, the, uh, do you know where your family is? By the way, you, I mean your personal family. Where would you say your personal family is in all of this? Huh? That's a leadership question. And, and, and the question is not, okay, how can I get my family to show up to church stuff more? No, see, that's the car wash model, isn't it? The question is, how can I shepherd my family into a loving relationship with Jesus Christ? How can I help them increase their love for Jesus? How can I help them follow Christ? And how can I, as the leader, model the way? Tim Keller is uh, a pastor. He's kind of a pastor to pastors, And he once said to preachers, he once said, if you are preaching and your audience is learning truth, but they could never imagine being like you, responding to the world like you, thinking like you, feeling like you, that's not good. That's not good. Ouch. When I heard that, ouch. That's convicting. So, what's the answer? The answer is back to Mark's gospel in verse 32. Mark 12, 32, the answer is what the scribe said. You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself, listen to what he says here, is much more than all hope. Whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Church family, do you know how big that is? For a teacher of the law to confess that and to say that? A scribe, mind you, admitting that religious activity does not guarantee spiritual maturity. It's possible to sacrifice a burnt offering and not love God. And I'll tell you something else. It's possible to pastor a large church and not love God either. It's possible to design and lead perfectly conceived and executed worship services and not love God. It's possible to preach insightful, biblical, Christ-exalting messages and not love God. It's possible to write books that deepen others' love for God and not love God. It's possible to be mechanically correct and spiritually bankrupt. And this scribe here is admitting that the church activity model for spiritual maturity is not going to work. It's not going to produce love. And I guess what I want to challenge us here to think about is that if you want to grow in Christ, if you want to be spiritually formed, spiritually mature, I want to challenge you to take personal responsibility for that. I want you to take personal responsibility for that. Every believer must make it a priority Let the dead bury the dead. And this is so significant, and this is the hardest part of this message. Listen up. Because we learned in our research that there are some barriers to spiritual growth. There are some barriers from moving from one season to the next season. And so that to the degree that some of you, 25% of us feel spiritually stalled spiritually stalled and then we ask the question what is it that's causing us to be spiritually stalled spiritually stalled and here's what we found out let's look at the next slide why are we feeling spiritually stalled 80 percent of those who are feeling 80 percent of those who are feeling spiritually stalled in our church so 80 percent of the 25 percent are you with me say that they're stalled because they're just, not making, they're just not making it a high enough priority. That's it. That's why. 57% say we've got conflicting responsibilities. 47% say, well, it's because I've got, I've got some emotional issues. And those are real, and those cannot be ignored. Because church family, I've never seen someone who is as spiritually mature as they are emotionally mature. They go hand in hand. But look at the bottom line. Well, let's go to the last two bottoms. These are serious. The last three are serious. But not loving, just I'm not loving others. Well, that's going to stall. Addictions will cause your spiritual growth to stall. Inappropriate relationships will cause you to stall. And 12% of those of us who feel stalled have, this is an anonymous survey, So I don't know who took it. I know I took it. (laughs) But 12% of those who took Reveal, who say they are stalled, say that the reason why they're stalled is because they are in an inappropriate relationship. And the reason why that arrow is there is because we took this along with 200 other churches and 12% is 20% higher than the other churches. So you say, well, I'm not growing in Christ. Well, okay. Who's going to make it a priority for you if you don't? I'm not growing in Christ. Okay, I can't read your Bible for you. I can't. I can't pray for you. I can't deal with the emotional issues for you. And I cannot stop the inappropriate relationship for you. At some point, we have to take the responsibility to be self-feeders, And we need to find out where we are and then become stubbornly intentional about increasing our love relationship with Christ. And we need to stop thinking that just showing up equates becoming spiritually mature. Spiritual maturity is about growing my love relationship for Jesus and others. We need to say along with the scribe, Jesus, you're right. You're right. And when Jesus saw that the man answered wisely, verse 34, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Why? Because the scribe. Because the leader. The leader, the church, the, the synagogue, the, the temple leader said Jesus is right. Who else needs to ask any more questions? Spiritual growth. Spiritual formation, church family. It's about loving God by following Christ. And it's about loving others. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Before we close, I want to give three take-homes, all right? Uh, and the first take-home is this. Would you please take some time this week to answer the question, where are you? Where are you? Hmm? Where are you? It's a question God asked Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Where are you? He knew where they were, did they? Spiritual formation is not going to happen by accident. It's going to be intentional. Intentional. Paul said to Timothy, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. Ask yourself, where are you? And then I want you to come back next week because next week we're going to talk about the first two segments or groups, the exploring Christ and growing in Christ. And we're going to talk about, we're going to learn from the Scripture what those who were exploring Christ or what those who were growing in Christ, what practices, what attitudes, what behaviors they participated in To help facilitate growth, to help facilitate a loving relationship with God and others. And then on the 29th of June, we're gonna talk about the other two segments, all right? So I want you to take some time to do that. Where are you? Secondly, I would like for you to make time to memorize the Jesus Creed. What's that? Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. I want that to become a part of our heart and soul. There's no commandment greater than these. May, Lord, you are one, you are incomparable, you are unique. I love you with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. Empower me and strengthen me to love those you love. Help me love my neighbor as myself. I want you to take that prayer. I want you to pray that at the beginning of every day, at, in the middle of the day, at the end of the day. Pray that along with the Lord's Prayer because the Lord's Prayer is a prayer about loving God and loving others if you think about it. Pray and make the Jesus Creed a part of your vocation. Your vocation. It's your vocation to love God and love others. A vocation is a calling A craft. Love God and love people. I have short daily devotionals that I've put on the tables. Some of you have already picked those up. Little, just 15, 20 minute reflection questions based on the message today. Because what we've learned and what we'll learn in the next few weeks is that loving God and loving people in all four segments, you will grow if you will read God's word and if you will pray. You will. You will. You will. And then thirdly, I want you to make time to love a neighbor. Brandon, my 15-year-old, and I, well, we were feeling kind of sluggish. Actually, I was feeling kind of sluggish, and so I said, get in the car. We went over to Salt and Light. We went over to Salt and Light Wednesday. Scott Olthoff from our church, Nathan Montgomery, Thad Sweet, they have that ministry fine-tuned. It's a wonderful ministry. We, we, we participated in food distribution, Uh, from 1 to 2 o'clock on Wednesday, and uh, I just could feel the love level in my heart for God and others growing. You know what? You know, it took me 10 minutes to get trained once we got there. 10 minutes of training, and then we served. We served people. Mondays and Wednesdays, Mondays and Wednesdays, 1245 to 2 o'clock, gives you an opportunity to love people. Family Resource Day is coming in August, August the 9th. You'll be hearing more about that and how we can love people that way. And then I want us to have some love for our own team right now as we pray over them